0: Randall Kennedy is a Michael R. Klein professor at Harvard Law School, where he teaches courses on contracts, criminal law, and the regulation of race relations. He is a member of the Bar of the District of Columbia, the American Law Institute, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the American Philosophical Society. His other books include For Discrimination, Race, Affirmative Action, and the Law, the Persistence of the Color Line, Racial Politics, and the Obama Presidency. His new book is Say It Loud on Race, Law, History, and Culture. Thank you for joining me, Randall. Thank you very much. This is a book of essays, and I love the essay form a lot. Um, And I think you write essays extremely well. And one thing that's really appealing about this book is your voice in writing these essays We get a really clear picture of who you are and and what you have to say and what you're interested in, what you believe. Uh, talk about the appeal of the essay form for you as a writer.
1: Well, I've enjoyed essays for a long time, and some of my favorite journalists, favorite scholars, favorite intellectuals. Have been essayists. I I immediately think of uh Irving Howe. I think of uh I. F. Stone, I think of um uh Dwight McDonald. These are people who I read when I was in college. I I enjoyed their writings. And I like the essay form because um it's you know, typically they're 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 very manageable. You know, you, uh, you, you, you give somebody something that they can sit down with for, let's say, 30 minutes or an hour, and that's it. And then they can go on to some other topic. So I, I really like the essay form. You
0: know, one thing that struck me was in, in this book, and you do this repeatedly, you say, I once believed this, now I believe something different. And you um, really embrace this, uh, the Scott Fitzgerald quote, you know, the measure of a mind is the ability to hold two ideas that are in opposition to one another and still be able to function. And I think that's really important in our current world because change happens so fast that the facts of one moment are invalidated. By the facts of another, by either scientific discovery, technological advances, cultural change, immigration—it does not matter what the change is. It, things change, and I think this is important to acknowledge in humans, and all
1: too rare. Well, thank you. Um, you know, I'm a—I'm an academic. It's a great privilege, and I'm always interacting with students i'm interacting with colleagues i'm interacting with books and you know uh as you learn presumably you change and uh you know you you learn and hopefully that pushes your thinking to a a, a higher level or a deeper level and if that's true uh and sometimes it is then of course you're going to uh change your mind and I, I don't see anything I don't see anything embarrassing uh, about that at all. I don't I don't in fact I don't I don't see anything embarrassing about saying I thought such and such upon rethinking it however, um I abandon that belief or in fact or I repudiate that belief. I don't I don't think there's anything embarrassing about that stance.
0: It it gives your prose kind of a really fresh feel, like we're really talking to you right here in uh, the moment. And I think, too, uh, that the the prose-ness, what's interesting to me is that sometimes reading about legal matters as written by legal professionals is like reading about the intricacies of high math as written about by high math professionals, which is to say impenetrable. This book it really gets right down and talks to people who are not involved in
1: the law. You know, I think I was really helped tremendously um, by writing for general interest publications. So I remember as a as a as a law student, I wrote an essay for Harper's Magazine. And um the 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 editor said something to me that I've 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 kept in mind. He said, you know, if you're writing for a general interest, uh uh his name was Lewis Lapham. That's right. Lewis Lapham. Wow. Lewis Lapham.
0: A famous guy, one of, you know, legendary
1: editor. Yeah, I've never met him, but I, I talked with him on the phone. He accepted an article that I wrote, and he said, "Listen, um, in academia, uh, readers have to read what somebody's written. I mean, if you're if you're the teacher, you've got a captive audience. The students have got to read what you what you write, and if you're a teacher, you're supposed to read the." Writings of the students, but you know, everybody's sort of a captive. He said, you know, when you write something for Harper's magazine, nobody's got to read this thing. And in fact, if um if they pick up a magazine, they are gonna look at a title, they're gonna look at maybe the 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 first paragraph, and they're gonna give it just a very, you're gonna only have you're gonna have less than a minute. To hook the reader. And what you've got to do is hook the reader and keep the reader with you, because the reader does not have to read to the end of your your piece. And I really took that to heart and um, have tried to, in my scholarly writing, tried to keep in mind the idea, you know, nobody has to read what you're writing, Kennedy you've got to keep the reader with you and I, I think that that's been a, a very helpful thing for me.
0: Well <clears throat> the this book is a, a delight to read I enjoyed really truly enjoyed it and to be honest I didn't know what to expect but I was hooked and it was I found it something of, of a page turn in that regard and you get he caught me on the first line of the preface which reads, The writings that follow are the impressions of a black-slash-negro-slash-colored-slash-African-American law professor born in Columbia, South Carolina in 1954, four months after the Supreme Court handed down Brown v. Board of Education. Now, in this single sentence, A, you directly um, set up two essays down the line, Mm -hmm. and they're both really fascinating, but also... You cover a huge swath. I just read that self description. I thought that's seventy years of cultural history condensed down into four words. That's amazing, and you elaborate this on one of, in one of your essays: the struggle for collective naming, and you talk about the. It's really fun to read because you talk about how the Associate Press style book says to talk about uh, the. Black people and how um, the New York Times and I just thought it was fascinating to read this.
1: Well, you know, <clears throat> some of the essays in this collection stem directly from experiences I've had in class. So a couple, uh, a number of years ago, I was giving a lecture, and in the lecture on uh, I I used the term Negro, and <clears throat> After a couple of minutes went by, a student held up her hand and she said, you know, very, very, very courteously, she said, Well, Professor Kennedy, are you using this word um, in its historical context? Uh you know, or are you, and 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 sort of or, or, or are you using the word in your own voice? You know, are you using the word the way that people used to were, use the word Negro, or are you using the word in your own voice? And I said, well, I'm doing both. And she said, well, to the extent that you're using it in your own voice to refer to Black people today, I'm I'm quite offended. And I said, oh, that's, that's, that's interesting. Tell me more. And she said, well, I think it's a very old-timey usage. I think it's, you know, derogatory. And so I'm just going to let you know, I, I, I think, you know, I don't think well of this. And I said, OK, well, uh, point noted. Let me think about it and get back to you. And I did some research. And the essay that's in the book is the essay that uh, was prompted by this student's complaint. And the the bottom, you know, one of the points that I try to make in this essay is that over the course of American history, Black Americans have referred to themselves using all sorts of terms. And I especially focus near the end on this word Negro because that was what she really objected to. And at the very end, I said, you know, I I know for sure when I started using the word Negro, capital N, quite a lot. I started using it quite a lot in 1983-1984, and I used it at the direction of my boss. And I said, I think it's useful for you to know who my boss was. My boss was Thurgood Marshall, Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court, and a man who was lovingly known as Mr. Civil Rights. And i he directed me, that he told his law clerks, that's the term I use. Well, one of the reasons why I like using the term, frankly, from time to time is it makes me, it prompts me to think about the great Thurgood Marshall. And I guess my position is, if it was good enough for Thurgood Marshall, if it was good enough for Martin Luther King Jr., if it was good enough for W.E.B. Du Bois, It's good enough for me. I don't think there's anything wrong with the term Negro uh, so long as, you know, it's used in a, you know, with a, with a respectful uh, purpose. And so I use, I use all these terms and I sort of wanted to signal in the first sentence of this book, what I was up to. And that's why, you know, that's why you confront that, uh, that sentence, you know, right up front.
0: Well, uh, I thought both the essay and that usage were really brilliant and inviting the reader to think and engage with you in the manner that one engages with an essay. Now, the, the preface goes on, and I think it's, it's really interesting. I mean, you just lay it right out there. First, racism continues to be a major force in America. Second, there's much to be inspired by when serving the African-American journey from slavery to freedom. Third, social relations are complex and messy. Now, <laughs> that's a great summary of where we, where we are in this moment and where we've been for the last X years. You're, you would be better equipped to fill in that number than I
1: well i mean frankly um the american story has always been complex and messy um because you know we're we're human beings and human beings are complex uh and messy even even in the situation where it looks simple it, usually, it it's not And one of the things that I like doing is um, actually turning things over and looking for the messiness, looking for the ironies, looking for the paradoxes, um, looking for things which people might find surprising. That's what I like doing in uh, class. That's what I like doing in lectures. That's what I like doing in uh, these essays. The essay that follows
0: is also just fascinating. Shall we overcome optimism and pessimism in African-American racial thought? And I found this really a, a great, well of insight and and also i found it really engaging to read so talk about about writing about hard subjects complicated messy stuff yet telling a story that the read that just grabs the readers and keeps us going reading each word i mean you once you start one of these essays you will read it through to the very end and be inclined to start the next? Well,
1: this essay, uh, I mean, all these essays mean a lot to me. I'd say that this one in particular, and this one in particular, well, first of all, let me just say just quickly what the essay is about. The The, the essay is about two camps in uh, African-American racial thought. One camp I call the optimistic camp. This is the camp that believes we shall overcome. This is the camp that um, the great spokesperson for this camp in the 19th century would have been Frederick Douglass. Uh, Frederick Douglass, even before the abolition of slavery, was asked whether he envisioned a time in which a uh, uh, Black Americans and white Americans and all Americans would be able to live in the same country uh, as neighbors on an equal basis. Now, here is a person who was enslaved. He's speaking before before the abolition of slavery, and he says, yes, I can envision such a moment. In the 20th century, the great spokesperson for optimism would be the great martin luther king jr. i have a dream for instance would be uh, a classic uh, example of his optimism or his last speech uh, just you know hours before he was 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 murdered uh, his mountaintop speech i might i might not get to the promised land with you but i've glimpsed the promised land he was an optimist in the in the 21st century uh, the 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 most significant spokesperson for the optimistic tradition would probably be Barack Obama. Now, that's that's one camp. Uh, there is a pessimistic camp. The pessimistic camp is the camp of people who say, "No, unfortunately, we shall not overcome." Uh, American history has poisoned the well. Uh, slavery and segregation and all of the other atrocities have made it so that um, we're not going to the, the, the gravitational pull of racial oppression is such that we will we will not be able to transcend it. Now in the in that, you know, tradition, you would have uh, black nationalists of various sorts. So in the 19th century, the Black nationalists who said that, you know, the, the, the hope of Black people in America was to leave the United States. In the 20th century, Marcus Garvey or uh, Elijah Muhammad or Malcolm X. Uh, and then there's another person very close to me, my father. My father, whom I revere, was a thoroughgoing pessimist he was born in louisiana he had seen you know uh racial oppression in 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 some of its most you know horrible guises and he believed that the united states was and would always be a white man's country now i grew up with my father my mother had a, a different set of views but i grew up uh with these two camps Uh, in, you know, in my household. And what I try and do in this essay is to bring these two camps alive and to try to show people why it is that thoroughly reasonable people could be in either of these camps. And I end by saying, you know, I've, I've been an optimist generally though I, you know, I, I end the essay by saying that my optimism frankly has been shaken in the past several years. um I still remain an optimist, but uh I'm 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 a more anxious optimist than I used to be. Let's leave it at that You know,
0: one of the things I love is your ability to use a story. In this book, to make your point, and the story you just told me is a perfect example of that. So talk about the you. Often, near the you know construction of an essay is seen as you know an an exercise in a kind of formal argument structure. Here's this fact. In contests, is this fact the always app, etc.? So we come to this conclusion. Talk well, about using story in that to just make that compelling reading and a better argument.
1: Well, you know, again, um, one thing that's difficult is to figure out what you want to write about. You know, when when do when do you think? You have something that other people might be interested in. And for me, one of the telltale signs that I might be onto something is if I talk about a subject and it prompts several iterations of argument. I mean, if over the course of a month, I go out to dinner with various sorts of people and I get in an argument about a topic, I say, oh, there, that, there's a topic that warrants uh, examination. And that's that's often how I come across Uh, That's that's often the beginnings of these, you know, of an essay. The essay will be prompted by a discussion that I will have with someone. So, for instance, the second essay in the book, the second essay in the book, which I I think is probably the longest one, is an an essay called Derek Bell and Me. Now, Derrick Bell is a is a person who's been in the news the past couple of years because he is known as one of the, you know, uh, I don't know, progenitors of of critical race theory. Uh, Derrick Bell was the first tenured black professor of of law at at Harvard University, and um, he was a a very interesting person. He, he, like I said, he was the first black tenured professor. He gave up his professorship uh, out of protest. Harvard had never hired a tenured black woman. He demanded that Harvard do so. He threw down an ultimatum. When the law school, you know, didn't meet his deadline, he left. And he and I had a very interesting relationship. We were friendly, but we were also adversaries in various ways and I found myself uh in the aftermath of his death in 2011 uh I, I would you know be out with people and on on several occasions people said, well, you know what was your relationship like with Derek Bell and you know on where did you agree where did you disagree? Um, I, I've, I've heard that you all were friends, but on the other hand, I've read things by both of you in which you criticize one another very sharply. What's the story? And after I had answered that, you know, after a bunch of people had asked me that question, I thought, well, I should write this out. And that's, that was the genesis of, of this essay, uh, Derek Bell, uh, Derek Bell and me. But there are a number of essays in here that were generated in, in precisely that way—dinner uh, time conversations, good debate, good strong back and forth—and when that happens, I you know I say, well, okay, that that suggests to me that this would be a topic uh, worthy of, uh, of 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 further exploration
0: one of the things about that essay that just hypnotized me was that we can see over the years how uh, David Bell developed um, critical race theory and and see the seeds of it. And we, having lived in a post-critical race theory world, understand what he is thinking before he is thinking it in your narrative and that's just really uh, i thought it was a r- incredibly well done uh piece of writing to show uh, the the genesis uh, of an idea and also you know the back and forth that's required to make that work because i mean no idea comes to fruition in uh a world of total acceptance and, and
1: appreciation. It, well, I, I'm I'm glad you liked the essay. Again, for me, it was a um.
0: It seemed very personal too. That's it one was, of the things I liked about it is that I felt you know seeing your relationship with him go back and forth, and, and yet the. Uh, you know a mutual respect that is maintained throughout it it, that's really it was very admirable and yet and uh it's a compelling story to read
1: to see that play out like that well i'm glad you like it 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 was a, a tough one because we were friends um we did have a fall. We, you know, we we did have fallings out, and I talk about that in the essay, and I don't make any, you know, I don't hide it. And I was extremely disappointed by certain things that he said and certain things that he did with respect to me. But in the end, in the end, we fortunately were able to reach a certain sort of reconciliation. We hadn't talked in a long time. I heard that he was really in, you know, bad health and I called him up and you know, simply said, "Listen. You know, we've had our disagreements. Um we we still have our disagreements, but I want you to know that I I very much appreciate uh, the help that you've given me, you know, throughout my career, and I just want you to know that. Well, a week later, he calls me up and he says, "Listen, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm having really very serious health problems, and uh, I'm, I would, w- what I would like, I'd, I would like for you to come up and teach one of my sessions." at uh, you know one of my seminars at the New York University School of Law. And I told him, I said, gosh, you know, I am really so flattered that you would issue that invitation. And absolutely, I'll absolutely, I'd love to do that. And I did. I went and taught the seminar. Alas, when I taught the seminar, it was a week after he had passed away and I wrote this essay um with the feeling that uh I had I had not given him during his lifetime the you know the the full the, the his due really. I don't think that I had given him his due and my effort in this essay was to give him his due and in my view, in in my way of seeing things um giving a fellow scholar a fellow intellectual his or her due means to take them really seriously and that means to be willing to criticize them seriously and one of the things that i think is a is really too bad is that The people who were very friendly to Derek Bell's ideas, in a way, they were too friendly. They were unwilling to take his ideas seriously enough to criticize them. And then the people who really didn't like his ideas, they basically dismissed them and didn't engage with them. And so I, I thought that he was an important thinker who for various reasons had not gotten the benefit of what i would call sympathetic criticism and this essay is an attempt to offer a sympathetic you know i think pretty tough but sympathetic critique of of his work and you know um as I was writing it, um it, it was an emotional experience because I would I would write things and it would make me think of conversations with him. It would make me think of um of you know various things we shared. I mean, one thing we shared, a tragic thing we shared, we were both widowers, and we were both widowers because. Uh, his wife uh, died of a cancer. My wife died of a cancer, and there's a further sort of turn on it because my wife was a cancer surgeon. and you know, she spent a lot of time talking with um, you know, Derek's first wife. And so we had we had that sort of tragedy in common. And that tragedy, you know, in a sense, sort of brought us together, uh, you know, despite our, you know, ideological fractures. So it's a it's a complicated story. It's a story that I I thoroughly enjoyed putting together, uh, and it 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 is a story that, you know, that um, touched you know various various chords.
0: You know, <clears throat> throughout this book, you cite various parts of history and aspects of history that, though, I went to good schools and, you know, I had a standard um, issue American education, went to college and uh, eventually got a job that had nothing to do with my degree, Um I did not know most of the history, or I had not seen the history from the perspective that you gave us in this book. And I think history is really important. And just from what I read in this book, I thought, boy, this book should be in the history course of every American you know, high school student because it gives a really good pers- <coughs> perspective.
1: Well, you know, history has been very important to me. Um there's a way in which, I mean, I'm am a lawyer, there's a way in which lawyers are always historians to the extent that lawyers depend upon precedent so much, especially if we're talking about common law subjects, you know, custom, precedent, uh, you know, that's 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 that's, that's a, a lot of what lawyers deal with, but apart from that, the study of history has always been important to me. My The greatest teacher that I ever had was my advanced placement American history teacher in high school. His name was John F. McCune. And Mr. McCune introduced me to in a way the, the historiography, the history of historical writing, and he introduced me to historians who've been important to me throughout my life. Mr. McCune introduced me to the writings of C. Van Woodward. He introduced me to the writings of Richard Hofstadter. He introduced me to the writings of W. E. B. Du Bois. Um, and I've I've always had a love of history. And then when I went off to college. I fell under the sway of several really world-class historians. Arthur Link, the great biographer of Woodrow Wilson. Um, Eric Foner, the great historian of reconstruction, who has become a lifelong friend of mine. So history, and particularly um, the politics of history, has been a a a very deep interest, remains a deep interest uh and is really a part of 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 my scholarship. So you know that and it, and it always will be so i'm 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 not surprised to to hear you sort of pick up on the importance of history. and for me again, I emphasize the politics of, uh, of of historical writing.
0: One of the uh, essays I really liked was the George Floyd moment, Promise and Peril. And it introduced me to a word I'd never seen before, pigmentocracy. I think that's a really fascinating word. Discuss this essay and the George Floyd moment because, I mean, has it passed? Is it? Is it rebirth do we have a rebirth? Uh,
1: you would know well, the George Floyd moment, I mean, when we talk about the George Floyd moment, we're talking about I mean just to you know remember uh George Floyd was killed by police officers in Minneapolis on may twenty fifth twenty twenty and that moment. Was a very important moment in the shaping of this collection of essays. For one thing, um, you remember, you know, we th- this this book of essays was really, in a way, a COVID project. It was put together when I was at home because school had been shut down, and um, you know, I wanted to do something, and I it was it was during the shutdown. That I put these essays together, updated them, uh, and smoothed them out for for publication. The George Floyd moment was a remarkable moment. You know, after George Floyd's killing, after the after the tape was shown, uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people saw this horrible killing. And were, you know, people were mobilized um, uh, by it. And I wanted to write about the breadth and intensity of the of the expressions of bereavement that were um that were that were that were evident in the weeks and months after that terrible killing. And so this essay is about that moment. I call it, the the name of the essay is the George Floyd moment, promise and peril. Now, the promise was um, the idea of people being mobilized, uh, people demanding much needed uh, change in the administration of criminal justice in America, particularly with respect to the police. Uh, that was the promise. You know, um, people were mobilized, people were active, people were demanding change. That was the promise. The peril was um, and unfortunately, I think we've seen the peril. The peril was that uh people who were mobilized would do what you know often happens there's overreaching there is in an effort to do something good people come up with you know ideas which frankly are half baked for instance you know the idea of uh you know um uh, abolishing the police well, I mean, I understand the the impulse, but you know, the fact of the matter is that any any society of any you know any any, any, any society like ours and lots of people, a complex society, is going to need police. I mean, we 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 need protection. That's very important. We need protection just like we need other sorts of public utilities. I mean, talking about, you know, shutting down the police is like, you know, what? Shut off the electricity. Um, so I thought that there was, you know, the the peril was people would glom onto untenable ideas. People would overreach. Um that was one set of, of, of perils. Another set of another type of peril was the peril of inertia.
0: What I mean a great it's line very, that was in this book when he write it. The um you, uh, you write the ability to uh, to withstand not only backlash, but something even more fearsome, the dulling power of inertia. I, yeah. I just love that line.
1: Well, it's very tough you know it's 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 very tough to overcome inertia uh, we have bureaucracies we have habits um we, we we live lives we're we're all doing a variety of things it's you know, you get excited about something question how long can you stay in a hyper excited state not long and so what often happens with bureaucracies they can they can outlast you they can out you know they can just wait and wait and wait until the excitement ebbs. Now, have we seen that to some extent? Yes, we've seen that to some extent. I do think that the you know I think that some of the demonstrators have succeeded uh, in 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 creating certain important reforms. One thing that I think that the demonstrators that the activists did that was, you know quite remarkable, quite admirable, and I think it it's still it it has legs, they did change consciousness. They put the problem of policing on our minds, so that we're you know we're we're more aware of the problem of police um police overreaching we're more aware of the problem of police brutality we're more aware of the problem of a uh, police lying and those activists help put that on our minds i think it's still on people's minds and that's good because you know th- those are problems that really do continue to need our attention. Again, you know, are there good police? Of course, they're good police. Policing is a very difficult job. It's a very needed job. Uh, There are good police, but there are also police officers who do what people with power often do, and that is abuse their power. And we have to be very aware of that, very attentive to that, and try to redress that ongoing problem and that's that, that's sort of what I was you know trying to get at with this this that essay, the george floyd moment uh promise uh and peril
0: i uh, I love the essay uh Brown as senior citizen is mm-hmm. celebrating the sixty fifth anniversary of the Brown b Board of education. Uh, decision and it's interesting because it turns that decision into a character and we see it that character experience you know good times bad times Mm -hmm. be misinterpreted in the way it's speaking and to be overlauded talk about turning a judicial decision into a character
1: yeah you know I wrote that essay for um, uh, it was it was it was initially a lecture that I delivered at the New York Historical Society. I love the New York Historical Society. They had invited me to, to give a lecture, and I was thinking of Brown versus Board of Education, and I thought, you know, um, Brown is senior citizen. And you know why I thought about Brown as senior citizen? I thought about Brown as senior citizen. And here I go back to the very beginning of our interview here, because in the very beginning of our interview, you read the first sentence of my book. And the first sentence of my book points out that I was born in 1954. I was born September 10th, 1954. Brown versus Board of Education was announced by the Supreme Court on May 17, 1954. So, when I talk about Brown versus Board of Education as senior citizen, I'm talking about myself as senior citizen. And you know, this coming May will be the 70th anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education. And so, you know, when I think of Brown, I'm thinking of a decision that really does map my life. And I think that that, it's, you know, was sort of what was animating the effort to bring Brown alive by making it a character. And so I talk about Brown in its infancy. I talk about Brown in its adolescence. I talk about Brown at middle age. And now I'm talking about Brown as a senior citizen. And you'll note that what I, I end the essay by um saying to people of my you know, political persuasion, I count myself basically as a, a, a progressive. I'm on the leftward end of the American political spectrum. I say, you know, um. Brown has done a tremendous service. Uh, we should let it retire, however. It's it's you know, it's it it is it has been a wonderful vehicle, but we should look now for new vehicles. Let Brown retire. And of course, when I said let Brown retire, again, I sort of had my, I, I was thinking of myself a little bit. But I'm I'm I that that particular essay um and that particular case, there's no case that casts uh more of a shadow in this book than Brown versus Board of Education. And of course it casts a shadow not only because, of the ultimate holding uh remember brown it was in brown versus board of education that the supreme court determined that racially mandated separation of the races is a type of invidious discrimination that is in violation of the equal protection clause of the 14th amendment that's what brown versus board of education decided and but for me Brown brings in to mind some other things that I talk about in this book. One thing that it, one you know, person that Brown versus Board of Education brings to mind for me is Thurgood Marshall. And one of the essays in this book is about my former boss, the great Mr. Civil Rights Thurgood Marshall. And I, I talk about, you know, Thurgood Marshall arguing, you know, Brown versus Board of Education. Another reason why Brown versus Board of Education is especially, you know, sort of significant for me is because Brown versus Board of Education is um, a case that actually brings together four cases. Brown versus Board of Education, it's, you um, um, uh, Missouri, um, uh, Virginia, Delaware, and South Carolina. I'm from South Carolina, and one of the cases that is collectively known as Brown versus Board of Education is a case for the South Carolina case is Briggs versus Clarendon County. And, you know, people in South Carolina have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder about Brown versus Board of Education, because actually the case should be known as Briggs versus Clarendon County. But the justices, Justice Tom, at least according to Justice Tom Clark, the Supreme Court did not want to have as the title of this case a title coming from a deep south jurisdiction. They preferred to have a sort of middle states case. And that's why it's known as Brown versus Board of Education, as opposed to Briggs versus Clarendon County. And so the most famous Supreme Court decision of the 20th century should have been named after a South Carolina jurisdiction, but they but they but they lost it. But all of that is sort of comes to mind when I think of Brown versus Board of Education. And that's why that case casts such a a shadow uh, over this book of essays. You know,
0: there are 29 essays in this book, and I have to say I enjoyed every one of them. And uh, do you think you'll be writing more books of essays? Or uh, in one famous case, I believe it was a bell created a fictional kind of character a mm-hmm. fictional scenario and so would you try your hand at fiction to uh get at the heart of the facts of
1: this world uh no that's not a that's not a genre that uh you know that 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 attracts me i prefer to wrestle with um, our realities, I mean, one of the things about you know, sure, I you know, I, yeah, I I could, I could I could I could make up facts, or you know, I could I could make up and you know, quotation mark facts. I could make up things, but you know, if I made up things, I think there would be a a, a very strong tendency. to to make things easy on myself. You know, if you can make up something, okay, well, geez, you have a real dilemma on your hands. Okay, fine, I'm gonna change it. I'm gonna get rid of that dilemma. I can just wave a wand and get rid of the dilemma. Whereas the realities are sort of tough. I can't wave facts away. They are there. They are stubborn. They are, you know, they just, they, they don't move. They're immovable. I prefer having to grapple with uh, the facts as I find them. Will I write further essays? Sure, I will. I love magazines. I like giving lectures. I will continue to write short pieces about a wide range of things. I will continue that. Um, I do that alongside of other sorts of writing. so for instance, right now, I'm uh desperately trying to finish up a, a book on which I've been working for almost 10 years. it's a it's a book that tries to address the following question how did protests against racial injustice in the mid- 20th century change American law? And I'm dealing that book is now, uh, 800 plus pages long. Um, it's going to be, you know, still longer uh, before, before I, you know, before it's, it's, it's completed. And I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed writing that book. It's a, it's a different sort of writing. It's a different sort of book, but you know, I'm gonna write that book. Um, but I'm also going to continue to write essays. And um, I I hope that I'll have a chance to, you know, write, uh, you know, several books of essays. One sort of essay that I've never, I've never written um, highly personal essays, not about political subjects, but about highly personal subjects. I've never tried my hand at that sort of essay. I mean, you know, the essays that are in this book that we're talking about, they're historical essays, they're political essays, they're essays about legal uh, developments, but they're not essays about, uh, for instance, you know, anxieties that I have. They're not essays about, uh, you know, friends that I've had. They're not essays about uh personal, um personal horrors that are or sort of you know haunting, um, you know, haunting presences. I would like in the years to come to deal with those sorts of things as well. So, you know, am I going to continue to write books of essays? Uh, yeah, if my if, if 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 I'm lucky enough to maintain good health and lucky enough to live, yes, uh, there'll be several books of essays um, coming down the pike uh, in the years to come.
0: We'll look forward to all of them. I've been speaking with Randall Kennedy. His new book is Say It Loud on race, law, history, and culture. Thank you for joining me, Randall.
1: I really appreciate it. Thank you so much.